Episode 27 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we are continuing our characterization series with love interests and ancillary characters. Uh-huh. So, uh, you have to forgive me. I'm slightly cranky right now because I've had computer issues up the wazoo <laughs> all night. Plus, last week's episode, the one with the villains, has had also plagued with issue. That one was cursed. I'm pretty sure that that episode was cursed. Yeah, we had to record that one twice, and then there were sound issues when we finally did get it recorded, so... I mean, it is the Villains podcast, so I guess it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> that one of the Villains <laughs> cursed us. Uh, is it Voldemort? Is it Voldemort? Because we, we said that he was less scary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It totally was. And we're muggles. And, you know, yeah. I'm really yeah. cranky, too. It's like there's something in the air today. Well, that's a great note to start on for, for, our, for our love interests and ancillary character uh, well, episode. I think I think this podcast is going to cheer us up, though, because I know that most of my favorite characters in fiction tend to be ancillary characters. I I would agree. I I tend to love ancillary characters more, and in some ways, I think they're easier to love than mm-hmm. protagonists. Or am I the only one that thinks that? No, I think so. I think that, you know, they're, because they're less central to the story itself, um, I don't know. I think there's something about that being on the periphery that even when they're well-rounded and you see, like, their faults or their negative aspects, there's just something about it, you know, they're the main character's friends and so you feel like they're your friends too. I don't know. I guess, too, because the protagonist has to do a lot of heavy lifting in terms of getting the reader emotionally into the story, mm-hmm. because they're the vehicle, essentially, for the story to be told. And, I mean, we talked about in our protagonist episode, you know, that you can have an unlikable protagonist, but it can't, but the protagonist can't be unsympathetic. And that's really hard. Whereas, I think you can have a completely unsympathetic ancillary character and it it doesn't have the same stakes, I think, emotionally. Mm-hmm. And and I love unlikable ancillary characters, like the bitchy girl or the you know the mm-hmm. mean the mean girl or you know I I I'm not sure why because <laughs> I, I guess it's because they are not my vehicle into the story. So I don't need that le- the same level of empathy or sympathy with the ancillary characters as I do. Because right now I'm rereading uh, Lee Bardugo's Grisha trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I'm listening to those on audio at the gym. And there is a side character named Zoya who is pretty much a classic mean girl. You know, she's very beautiful. She likes... Our protagonist, Alina's uh, love interest, she is mean and snooty, but she's also kind of perfect. Like, she has perfect skin, perfect hair, and I love her. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
I, I, I just love her. And also, of course, over the course of the series, you see her grow and develop and get more nuanced and, you know, but it doesn't mean that she loses that kind of mean girl side to her. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. There's something about not being the main character that allows you to mm-hmm. just be stronger character wise. So what do you think is the purpose of ancillary characters? Why are they important to have in a story? Why can't you just have your hero and your villain and call it a day? I mean, there are stories where there are just heroes and villains, I suppose, really? but I feel like there probably must be. I feel like there always has to be ancillary characters. I I would agree. And the reason I think ancillary characters are important is because ancillary characters give context to your protagonist. Mm -hmm. Without your protagonist interacting with other characters aside from the villain, you don't really get a sense of who your protagonist is. So ancillary characters are there to, you know, just for your villain to kind of bounce off of character wise, Mm -hmm. personality wise, you know, what does it mean when you put your protagonist in a room with a really nice person? What does it mean when you put your protagonist in a situation with a really mean one, really kind of slow or, you know, kind of duplicitous or some, uh, a character that's lying or deceiving your your protagonist, the way your protagonist reacts to each of those characters says a lot more about your protagonist than anything else. Mm-hmm. So, what about you? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, when we did our protagonist uh, characterization episode, we talked a lot about how the way you reveal character is through actions and through what your character says and does. So I agree with you 100% that having those ancillary characters is important to demonstrate your character, your main character's traits, you know, how do they form friendships? What are their, where are their loyalties? You know, things like that. Um, I also think that ancillary characters are interesting in books or necessary because, um, a lot of times they can be a way to reinforce your themes or explore your themes in different directions. You know, if, you know, your main character is, um, you know, your A plot is exploring a certain theme. You can use your ancillary characters to approach that same theme from a different angle or perspective. And that enriches your work and layers your work more. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you see that a lot in television too. Like there'll be your A plot in the TV show. And then there's a subplot that's kind of about the same thing, but in a different way, but it all kind Mm -hmm. of feeds back into that same, um, you know, message or, or feeling or takeaway from that. So I think that's an interesting thing to do with ancillary characters too, um, is to use them to explore other parts of your work that you can't do with your main character. Yeah. So let's let's go on to what you think makes a good ancillary character and why I mean we did touch on briefly why we they we tend to love them more. Um, but what what makes you think is a what what do you think makes a good ancillary character? Um I think a few things. I think, you know, in general it goes back to that 
square one what makes any character a good character. You know, they have to be well-rounded, they have to be vivid, they have to be, um, you know, believable and seem like real people and be interesting and captivating and all that stuff that you need for any kind of character, no matter what kind of character that it is. But beyond all that, the what makes a successful ancillary character a character in that role, I think, is um, a character that... Um, brings a new or slightly different perspective to the story or the protagonist. It's someone that the protagonist can play off of, as we said. You know, it has to be, like, a lot of times you think of ancillary characters are like the best friend or, Mm -hmm. you know, the romantic partner. Now, sometimes the romantic partner is also a protagonist, but, you know, sometimes... um, the other half of the romantic couple is, you know, the romance isn't the main plot, and so they're kind of relegated to an ancillary character. Oftentimes they're family members, siblings, or parents, or teachers, or other mentors. Um, They're people who... Successful ancillary characters um, expand your understanding of the protagonist. They color the world and make the world feel more complex by their mm-hmm. different outlooks and perspectives and the things that they, um, you know, that the way they engage with the world themselves expands the world. Cause we're seeing more than just, you know, our protagonist interact with the world. We're seeing these other people interact with the world. Um, successful ancillary characters can oftentimes be used for comic relief. Mm-hmm. Um, they can be used, you know, for lots of, there's lots of different ways to use them depending on the type of book that you're writing um, and what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, we talked about antagonists and villains as being foils to your protagonist. And similarly, I think ancillary characters can function in a very similar way in that regard, that there is some sort of foil or they possess a trait that your protagonist doesn't have, Mm -hmm. um, but compliments your protagonist. Uh, For example, uh, last week Kelly and I talked about Morningstar, the last book in the Red Rising series by Pierce Brown. So we have our protagonist, Darrow, who is pretty much kind of, sort of your Harry Potter in many ways. You know, he wants to do good, and he's trying to lead, and he doesn't necessarily have sharp or spiky bits to him as a character, but then he has uh, his best friend slash lieutenant, uh, Severo. I love Severo. Yeah, Severo's my favorite character in the series. He's the greatest. Um, So you have Severo, who is kind of, who people call the goblin. So I think that actually says a lot about Severo as as a character. Um, You know, Darrow being kind of the golden boy, you know, and Severo is not. Severo sort of functions in a sneaky, underhanded way a lot of the times. He is very vulgar and rude, um, but hilarious, because I think, you know, Darrow has this particular way and approach where he sort of kind of takes the high road, you know? He's Uh sort of more noble-minded, but his very close friend, Severo, isn't noble-minded really at all. Um, and so the two of them play off of each other very well in, in that regard. 
Um, and also I just love Severo because of those qualities that Darrow doesn't have. I love that he's vulgar. I love it because it often functions as comic relief, but also because there's a vulnerability to Severo too, that totally breaks my heart. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, or if you think about Robin Hood and Little John, mm-hmm. and I'm specifically thinking of the Disney Fox movie, um, and you have this kind of quick-witted, charming, you know, sly Fox Robin character, and then you have the sort of steadier, kind of not quite as clever, perhaps, or sharp as Robin, uh, Little John, you know, see, or Sherlock and. Watson, mm-hmm. you know, the, the kind of these sort of pairs. And you can have more than just pairs. Mm-hmm. You can have, you know, multiple characters. Yeah, you think like Lord of the Rings. You have the wizard, you have the warrior, you have the, you know, you go through all the archetypes and you have someone that represents each trait. Do you think there's a difference between ancillary characters and ensembles? I think that there is, yes. Um,. But I think that ense- I think true ensembles are really rare. I think a lot of times we have a hero who is surrounded by a team, and a lot of people tend to think that that's an ensemble when really it isn't. I wouldn't call Lord of the Rings an ensemble. Um, I mean... You, I mean, you could you argue would... that, you know, there's maybe two or three people, but there, those, that group does not get equal weight. That's not, we're not telling all of their stories. We're telling one story that focuses predominantly on one character. And then we get other perspectives that feed into that to show us things that we can't see. But I... Uh, I don't know. I, the movies definitely have a protagonist, and that's Frodo. Mm-hmm. And I think Peter Jackson and his wife have specifically said that that was they had to because you needed somebody to sympathize with, and that had to be Frodo. But I don't. I think the books are pretty. It it they do give a lot of. He does give pretty much equal weight. To maybe not in the fellowship, but by the time you get to the Two Towers and the Return of the King, each set, like Merry and Pippin, have their storyline. Right. And Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli have their own storyline, and then Frodo, Sam, and Gollum have their own storyline, and they're pretty much three different storylines that converge at the yeah. end. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I guess. I guess when I think of like fellowship, it's not that way so much, but they do really tend to split off. Um, yeah, I, I could buy, especially Aragorn, I could buy him, you know, a dual protagonist situation there. But I still don't know if that's a true ensemble. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think, think it's... I can't... I think can't it's think hard. Too many. You know, I think, yeah. I think Six of Crows was a true ensemble. We spent equal time with everyone... Their pers- like we got different points of view. The the ensemble has a leader, and that's Kaz. But I don't feel that his story was being told above anyone else's story. Um, no, I, I agree. I think Six of Crows is an ensemble piece. Although I would think I do tend to think that story gives weight to Kaz. Mm-hmm. 
because he's the leader, obviously. Right. Um, so people's decisions kind of revolve around uh-huh. what Kaz, basically. Um, of course, that may change in Crooked Kingdom. The balance may shift a little bit. Right. So it could be a little bit different. But I would say, yes, most of the characters get pretty much equal weight in Six of Crows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I think most stories, though, really are one hero with a tight-knit group of friends. You know, in Harry Potter... Harry Potter's the hero. Ron and Hermione are always there. And their stories are important, but we're not telling their stories. We're telling Harry's story, and they're a part of Harry's story. You know, if you go to TV Buffy, the story is about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Willow and Giles and Xander are always there, and we tell their stories, and that's great. But that's not the point. The point is Buffy. I think that most times... It's less of a true ensemble, and it's more like a hero with their friends. Yeah, I would agree. I would say true ensembles are probably easier to find in television than it is in books. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just simply a function of point of view. Because most of the time, point of view is going to be close third or first. It's very difficult to find like a true third-person omniscient point of view in books these days. It's not so common. Um... Yeah, I think television is where... Like, Lost, I would consider an ensemble show. Battlestar Galactica, I definitely consider an ensemble show. In books, the closest, I think, would be something like... Possibly... Possibly... A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah. Um, Although, I would say that certain characters have more weight in that series, but... It is more than one, mm-hmm. certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, I would say, it's not one protagonist. Definitely, it's well, I think it's the two. two. I think it's the two of them. But, but I, there's also Stephen Black and Jonathan the Silkdown Hair. But I think they're ancillary, though. I don't think they're main characters. I think Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell are our main characters, and then the others are ancillary, I would say. I don't think Stephen Black is an ancillary character. It's been a long time since I've read it, so you could... He's definitely pretty major. Like, he's... Spoiler, you guys. He's the person that they talk about in the prophecy. Mm-hmm. He's the chosen one, not... Right, but that doesn't mean two. that it's his story, though. Like, he's an important... Like, he's important, but we're not telling his story, you know? I don't know. I would disagree. Really? I, it's been ages since I've read them, and I know that you've read them multiple times, so I'm, <laughs> I will totally defer to you on it. Um, like, there's... Like, you get points of view. I mean, that book is pretty close to third-person omniscient. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get this general overview of a lot of different characters, but I would definitely say... I would even say, venture to say, that Stephen Black is more significant than Mr. Norrell. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though Mr. Norrell is one of the named people in the title, but I I still think Stephen Black is more significant. Because you have then you have a character like Childermoss, who is Mr. Norrell's manservant, and while he does get POV chapters, I wouldn't consider him a main character. Right. He's an ancillary character. Um. But yeah, I definitely think television, it's easier to do because you're not necessarily going to be in one person's head the whole time. Mm -hmm. 
the way you often are in books. Um, so ensembles versus ancillary characters. Now, what about love interests as ancillary characters? Like we already talked about love interests, what Kelly and I personally liked yeah. <laughs> in love interests a couple of months ago, uh, mm-hmm. which I will link to in the show notes. Uh, but what about love characters and uh, love characters, love interests as ancillary characters? You know, I think that's interesting. It, it usually happens in stories in which the romance is not one of the main plot threads. You know, it's there and it's interesting and it illuminates maybe some characterization, but it's not the main function of, you know, of the book or of the story. Um, you know, we were just talking about Red Rising, and I would say that Mustang is an ancillary character in terms of yeah, romance, you know. Um, the romance is not the main focal point. She's an important character. Her relationship with Darrow is important, but it's not central, and Mustang herself isn't central in the story. It's Darrow's story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's an example of that. I'm trying to think of what some other examples of them are because I feel like it's easier to talk about them when you have an example to point to. What are some things where ancillary characters, the romance is not the point? I mean, we did already kind of talk about Ginny Weasley at length, (laughs) so I don't know that we really need to go back to that. Um, Well, I think it's more common to see ancillary love interests in middle grade than young adult Mm -hmm. because maybe just as a function of the age group where romance isn't quite so central to it the way it is in young adult fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think of some middle grade series that, uh, no, it doesn't count. His dark materials doesn't count. No, he's definitely a main character. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I know there's a million examples. And then of course, when you're trying to pull one out off the top of your head, uh, nothing, nothing comes to the surface, but, You know, I think that, like everything else, like other ancillary characters, you know, the role of the love interest as an ancillary character still has to do some basic things. You know, I think we have to understand why the protagonist has feelings for this person, which is sometimes a little bit harder when the romance isn't central because you're not going to spend all this time building up the romance because it's not the main plot. But I still think, you know, I think we've all read stories where you just, like, you just don't get the main couple. You're just kind of like, whatever. Oh, God, there's so many of those. (laughs) You're like, whatever. And you end up liking one of the side romances so much better than the main romance in the series because for whatever reason... Um, you know, that main romance just doesn't do it for you, but those sub-romances do. So I think it's important, whatever your ancillary character's relationship is to your main character, you have to make sure that that chemistry is there. If they're best friends, we want to know why they're best friends. You know, if they hate each other, we want to know why they hate each other. If they're, you know, indifferent but forced to work together, you know, we want all that to seem real. And if your main character is really well developed, but your ancillary characters aren't, 
those relationships aren't going to hold up. Your ancillary characters need to be vivid, too, so that we believe in those connections. Yeah. You know, it's funny when you say that your ans- if your ancillary characters aren't as well-developed. In some ways, I think that ancillary characters need to be slightly exaggerated or mm-hmm. heightened. And this is a fine line to walk because... If you do it too much, then they become a caricature and not a real person. But the reason I think you need to have a little bit of a heightened ancillary character is precisely because we're not in their heads. You know, we're only viewing them from kind of at at a slight removed, you know, because we're viewing them through the protagonist's lens usually. Um, and I think who does it really well is JK Rowling. Mm -hmm. She is able most of the time, to present to us a whole cast of characters that are very distinct um, because they're slightly exaggerated and or heightened. Mm -hmm. But that exaggeration or heightened quality to them allows us to kind of fill in some of the other characteristics of these ancillary characters or tertiary characters. You know, Mm -hmm. we mentioned in the protagonist episode that I think it was like Ernie McMillan Mm-hmm. Um, Providing and yep, or uh, or Cormac McLaggen <laughs> is kind of my favorite, actually. <laughs> Colin Creevy, the little yes. annoying, like <laughs> she's really good at that, and she because I think she kind of highlights one personality aspect. Mm-hmm. And, and punches that up. So when Harry faces these characters, that's kind of the first thing he notices about them. And therefore we have a distinct impression of these ancillary characters that then allows them to be memorable to the reader. Because I've definitely read books where I've, there, we, I had a whole bunch of ancillary characters in there and I could not remember their names, mm-hmm. what they were like. Uh, what they did, like I, you know, there are definitely books like that, and I think the books where I can't necessarily remember the ancillary characters is just precisely that. There isn't that kind of heightened aspect to them that makes them memorable, at least to me. That's that's how it works for me. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think you want that heightened sense of character in your ancillary characters in a way that you wouldn't necessarily want it for your protagonists or your villains for the reasons that you said. You know, I think that it marks them as memorable. It, it I think it works. I do think it's a fine line. You want to make sure that it's not, you know, a caricature. Because, you know, to go back to the example of Severo, he's the really crude, rash, sneaky, you know, spiteful guy. And that's very clear and it's very heightened and everything that he says and does, you know, kind of points toward that characteristic. But he's also vulnerable and he's also insecure and he also has, you know, other things that make him more than just a punchline. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you don't want your ancillary characters to just be punchlines. So that, you know, I, I think it's a fine line to walk, but I think that is in essence the key to writing memorable and um, successful ancillary characters. I mean, when you think about it, us as people, when we meet somebody for the first time and we don't know them very well, we're going to have kind of a singular impression of that person. 
you know, we're going to kind of come away from an interaction thinking, oh, so-and-so is really smart, or oh, so-and-so is really funny, or, you know, there's kind of like one characteristic that sticks out to us. So your protagonist is kind kind of going to look at other characters around him or her, or they, in a similar way, you know, there's going to be one distinct memorable thing about these different people that they meet. And of course, over the course of getting to know these other ancillary characters, other sides will start to emerge as they do in real life. As you, mm-hmm. you know, as you get to know people more and more, you start to discover that they are complex and have sides that aren't necessarily apparent upon first blush. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why ancillary characters have to be kind of punchy in that way. Yeah. But here's the thing that you want to do, too. And this kind of gets into craft a little bit and the way to write these things. You don't want your main character... You know, if if your main character is a teenage girl and your ancillary character is, like, the mean, the mean girl or the popular girl, you know, you don't want your main character to come across the ancillary character in the scene and go, oh, she's so mean. Like, (laughs) (laughs) like, that's not the way to convey these things, you know? So I don't want your main characters to just go around, like, naming the character traits of all the ancillary characters that they see. Again, you have to reveal that by the way that they react, you know, maybe your main character sees the mean girl coming and rolls her eyes or, you know, turns down the hall so she doesn't have to come face to face with her or whatever it is, however she reacts. When JJ is talking about those reactions being important, that's what we're talking about. We don't want you to just, you know, name off your archetypes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, again, this goes back to the show don't tell. Um, of course, some writers do tell, I would say somebody like Susanna Clark does tell, but she does it in an incredibly witty, Uh detailed way, uh, that, you know, if you have, if you have that much command or mastery over your prose, you can get away with some telling, Uh but even so I think showing you know, have those characters have a conversation, and that should show a lot. Going back to Harry Potter in book four, when we meet uh, Rita Skeeter for the first time, and the way Harry reacts to her when she tries to get an interview with him, you know, and she like shoves him into a little broom closet, mm-hmm. and and she's got her like quick quotes quill, and she's asking him questions, and he's kind of looking at her and looking at the quill and looking at her and looking at the quill and he's like, I haven't got tears in my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And this is so much about both of them. Mm -hmm. Another good one in Harry Potter too is right in book one when he meets Malfoy in the dress robes shop. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that short interaction, we get so much about Malfoy and who Malfoy is and we get so much about how Harry is not, you know, into this person, you know, but it's never, they never need to state it. It's just over the course of the conversation through the give and take as more and more is revealed, those things just naturally emerge. Yeah. It's the, it's what Draco says. I think it's the way he's described as acting. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Or even the Dursleys, you know, the first time we meet the Dursleys is actually not through Harry's point of view. It's kind of through more of an omniscient narrator's point of view. Um, But this is another place where J.K. Rowling, who's also pretty good mastery over her craft, is able to tell you things about the Dursleys that show a very, very complete picture of who these people are. And one of my favorite lines about them is that Uncle Vernon was somebody with no neck, um, and Aunt Petunia is somebody with too much neck. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think she said something about it was useful for peering over, over fences, fences and, yeah. yeah, and spying on their neighbors. <laughs> like, um, and that's a telling detail. That's something J.K. Rowling tells to us, but it's so specific, mm-hmm. so witty in its own way that you get a pretty good idea of who these characters are. Well, Jane Austen does that a lot too. Yes, with she the does. telling, and it's again, it's that very arch, you know, witty sort of observation that is part of her style, and you know, that's what she's commenting on is society at large. So it works for her. So it can, when done well, it works. Yeah, and it's also in combination because all of these authors that we've described tell these things about other characters or ancillary characters, but also shows them to us mm-hmm. in character interactions. So, you know, showing and telling is kind of a balancing act that you have to complete. And the better you are at or the more control over your craft that you have, the more you can get away with telling, I think, as opposed to showing. But we also, I mean, showing is still the most important thing. We want to see it. You know, we want, basically, why showing is so important is it's basically proof. You know, because often, and this is, again, we're going to go back to Ginny Ginny Weasley is a problem. We are told so many things about Ginny, but we don't see it. Therefore, Mm -hmm. we don't have the proof Mm -hmm. that she is what the author tells us is. Right. And that is the ultimate problem, because I don't mind any of the things that Ginny supposedly is. I love, you know, fierce girls who are athletic and who are strong and funny and, you know, flirty and whatever else. Like, all the things that Ginny purports to be, I'm on board I just don't think that we have any proof that Ginny is any of these things. I think we're just told this is the way that Ginny is. And that's the problem. The problem isn't that I don't like like Ginny as a character. It's that she's not well executed. Mm-hmm. And especially, as we would said, so much else in the series is so spot on that it just sticks out mm-hmm. like a sore thumb to me. Um. So, I guess more about love interests. And I'm actually thinking specifically of the Hunger Games. Because Katniss doesn't necessarily have friends. I mean, obviously that's a function of her characterization. She's Uh kind of a loner. And the only person she really cares about is Prim. But we hardly see Prim throughout the series. All of the main characters in her life are men. They're Haymitch, Gale. Uh Uh-huh. And Peta. So, would you consider that successful ancillary character writing, or no? Oh, you know, I think it's complicated, and I think they're all. I, you mean I think there are ancillary characters in the Hunger Games that are phenomenal. I think Joanna Mason. 
I love her. <laughs> is if everybody loves her. Everybody loves her. And that's because she's great and she's well written. She's, you know, we know exactly who she is. Uh, and she demonstrates that at every interaction, you know, but she's also has a lot of vulnerability and she's just a fantastic ancillary character. I think Hamish is a good ancillary character. Um, I think, I don't know that I've ever sat and thought about Gail and Peta like as characters, like from a critical point of view. I've thought about, you know, my own personal enjoyment or dislike of them, but I don't know that I've ever thought about them critically. And I guess, I guess if I'm totally honest, neither one of them really feels like a super great ancillary character in terms of execution to me. Yeah, I, I tend to think of them more as symbols than yeah. characters. Peta less than Gale. And that's, I think, simply a function of we see Peta more mm-hmm. than we see Gale. We do see Peta more. And there's a lot that I like about Peta. I like him as a character. And I like, you know, that romance to a certain degree. But... I don't know what it is about it so much that it just seems like everything for him, I guess, revolves around Katniss. And yeah. I, I don't really know anything about PETA that doesn't revolve around Katniss. It, what is PETA's life outside of Katniss? Right. And I don't, and there isn't one. We're told a lot of things, like he paints. He does paint, but even that, you know, is so tied into, yeah, I don't know. His feelings about her. I yeah. Mean, he paints scenes, I mean, he paints scenes from the Hunger Games and stuff like that, but it's it was hard for me to imagine a life for Peta outside of Katniss. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, I can imagine a life for Gale outside of Katniss. Yes. But he's... There's still so much about Gale that revolves around Katniss in a way that I'm kind of like, hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's no, you know, and even, I can't even imagine, like, the pre-Hunger Games PETA. You know, we know he's had this long secret crush on Katniss this whole time, but, you know, before then he was working in the bakery, he was going to school, he had these parents, and, you know, we know that his mother was kind of awful, but... Even that we only know in reference to like Katniss witnessing it and him getting in trouble with his mother because he is, you know, burning this bread to feed her. It's like even before the Hunger Games started and their lives became irrevocably entwined, like what was Peta's, what did he like? What did he want? What did he do? I, I, those are just all, I think, kind of empty questions. Yeah. I think this is actually one place where the movies are slightly better (laughs) because you when you see a character because we react to things differently visually than we do when we read them on the page when you see a character embodied by a person then you are able to kind of imagine more into a character Mm -hmm. if they're if they're decent actors (laughs) right because the actor is bringing their own full bringing their own experiences and emotions to it so they seem a bit more fully fleshed out and i think that is what I felt about the movie version of Peta, that there is something more about more to him than I thought there was in the books. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, I am still Team Peta, 
I yeah. do like that relationship a lot. But as far as characterization goes, I don't think Peta is the strongest. No, I would agree with you. And it's funny, until you just asked that question, I, I hadn't ever thought about him critically. Um, but I, I would agree. I do think Hamish is a good ancillary character. I feel like he has a whole interior life aside from Katniss. And so that works for me. Yeah. And other characters from other districts when she's meets them Mm -hmm. in, you know, like Finnick, obviously, um, Joanna, as we mentioned before, uh, BT virus, Mm -hmm. you know, like all the other tributes that she meets kind of later on. And then as the, you know, revolution grows, those are slightly better, I think. Mm -hmm. But aside from Katniss, whose characterization is so strong, I feel to me, the rest of the ancillary characters are not quite as strong in the Hunger Games as I think they are in some other series. Yeah, I agree. Do you think that that is a problem that is more likely to occur when there is a love triangle? Yes. I think so, because with a love... This may be why I don't like love triangles. No, me neither. Because with a love triangle... So much of the focus has to be on the center point because the whole point is to get that character to choose interest A or interest B. And so everything that those love interests do is going to be about, is going to filter around that main character. And so Mm -hmm. we're not going to see more of their other lives because the main conflict is this romance and one person has to win out over the other. So I think maybe by design, love triangles make it so that it's difficult to have the two competing love interests be fully formed characters. Yeah. 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 Again, like I said, it's, Probably, now that you kind of pointed it out, probably a reason I don't like Love Triangles. I don't like them either. I don't like them. They need to go away, guys. And and specifically the triangle, because I don't necessarily mind multiple love interests for a character. Yeah, we did talk about that in our love interest podcast. And I agree. I think there's interesting things that can be done. And I think that it's true that... um, you know, that people are complex and have feelings for multiple people at any given time. And, you know, I think that's an interesting thing to explore. But I also think that fiction is not, you know, is not about transcribing real life. It's about crafting a story that gets to some kind of emotional truth. And mm-hmm. that emotional truth might not necessarily be identical to, like, your real-world experiences. You know, that's that's why, like, our own autobiographical fiction that we all start out writing at certain points is usually not as compelling as fiction that is, you know, springs more freely from our imaginations. Um, because... Reality is no defense for fiction. Just because something, you know, might happen in real life doesn't mean that it's the best 
thing to happen in your story because your story is crafted. You are the person moving all the pieces in place. In a real life, things are random. Things happen inexplicably or, you know, without intent or purpose. But as the author, you are placing every word. You are moving those characters. You are telling these stories. And so I think there has to be a more sophisticated logic there or there should be <laughs> there should be <laughs> i agree there there should be <laughs> um so do we have any kind of closing thoughts about ancillary characters and love interests i don't know i mean again i think some of my favorite characters in all fiction are ancillary characters we just talked about several i love him you know i love pretty much everyone in the Harry Potter universe. I love Joanna mm -hmm. Mason. I love, you know, for every book I've ever read, I could give you my favorite ancillary character in it. So um, I just love them. I think they're important. I think that it's easy to overlook how important they are. I, I agree. And I'm trying to think of instances where there aren't that many ancillary characters in a book. I guess Codename Verity has ancillary characters. You don't necessarily see them on the page, per se, but basically that book is Verity mm -hmm. and Maddie. Mm -hmm. There's a, a villain in Verity's story, and Maddie's story kind of has the French resistance that she's with, but... I don't know. They're, they're not nearly as memorable to me no. as the two well, of them. Well, those two girls... And their relationship is the heartbeat of that story. So that, you know, is the main, the main thing. Yeah, I can't think of too many others, if any. <laughs> I guess if it's like a dual POV. So if you have like one character and then another character... Mm -hmm. And they're, like, kind of trading off telling a story. I think sometimes in those, the ancillary characters sort of fall by the wayside. Yeah. Because I, I can think of a couple where it's kind of alternated. And it's really about the two characters narrating the story. It really isn't necessarily about anyone else surrounding them. And, you know, they may have really interesting side characters. and But it's all still revolves around the two viewpoints. So mm -hmm. it's not like... It doesn't necessarily feel like those ancillary characters have lives beyond whoever's narrating. Yeah. And those are the ancillary characters I love. The ones that feel like they have lives mm -hmm. beyond the narrator. Basically, when I, read a when I read a book and it's an ancillary character and I'm like, I would read an entire book about this character. That's when I know it's, it's been done right. Like, I'd love to read a book about Severo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, any of the characters in, in Harry Potter, I would love to read a book about, and particularly J.K. Rowling, not that you listen to this, the only extra thing from your Potter universe that I care at all about anymore is a Marauder's story. Yeah. Please. <laughs> Tell me about the first rise of Voldemort, because I think there's an interesting story there. I don't care about what happens to Harry like 30 years after he's left Hogwarts. Yeah, no, we've told Harry's story. We've told Harry's story. We don't need that. We don't need a sequel, and I don't necessarily care about 1920s America, magical America, 
I won't even get into yeah, the problems no. I have with that. But, you know, I the only story that I really want from you, J.K. Rowling, is about the first rise of Voldemort and the Marauders. So, please. <laughs> All right, that's it from me. Okay. So, uh, have you been reading anything? Well, I just finished last night Morning Star by Pierce Brown, the final Red Rising book. Um, so I stayed up late past my bedtime and I read that one for a little while. Uh, it was good. I enjoyed it. I, I notoriously have problems with series finales. And so, um, this was a pleasant surprise. There were, there were a few things that bugged me, but for the most part, it was a satisfying conclusion. So that was nice. Uh, and I have not read anything else but that. What about you? I'm still reading City of Dreaming Books, um, which I love, but it's also like 700 pages long. <laughs> and you know, it's funny now that I talk, now that I think about this, because we haven't really touched on this in any of our characterization episodes, but like Alice in Wonderland and the Phantom Tollbooth, the whole premise of the book is kind of a joke. You know what I mean? You know, Phantom Tollbooth, it's not like Miles has a very deep characterization, you know? It's not even that Alice has a deep characterization either. Right. It's kind of more about the jokes kind of surrounding each of those characters. And the City of Dream books is very much the same way. Um, but I love these too. I mean, it's really hard to do well. I think of all the writing types or writing skills, this type of writing is the absolute hardest to do well and to do right. Um, Humor, in general, I think is one of the hardest things to write, period. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about this the other day because there's two of the genres that I like. I like humor and I like horror. And I'm notoriously picky about both. And and I kind of came to the conclusion that horror is pure emotion. It's all emotion. It's all about the deep, visceral fear of something that we as human beings, as a species, kind of have. Um, or as human beings in a society have. You know, that's kind of the gut, visceral feeling. And then humor, I think, is kind of on the opposite. It's almost purely intellectual you don't necessarily feel humor on a gut level per se the same way. At least I don't, you know, I, I, when something is clever and makes me chuckle, I'm not chuckling because I feel it, you know, deep down. I, uh, there's something that tickles my brain. Uh, like all of the puns, for example, in, um, Phantom Tollbooth, I love, I think they're hilarious and they're all, intellectual jokes, you know, they're not something I feel on a visceral level and sort of the same thing in the city of dreaming books. They're just, there's a lot of anagrams and things. So once, you know, when I figure out the joke, it's like this extra level of, you know, chuckling and enjoyment out of that. So maybe that's why I was in a reading rut because everything gave me feelings (laughs) and I need something kind of more intellectual like this to kind of Give my give my emotions a break mm-hmm. <laughs> before before I get back into that. So that was kind of what I was thinking about. So still working through that. Are you working on anything? 
No, it's glorious. <laughs> Technically, I'm cooking, which I haven't go. done. I haven't done when I was um, working on copy edits. I just haven't had time. And now that things have been turned in and I kind of don't have to worry about that much anymore, I'm going to the gym and cooking. And I have a couple of cooking experiments. I'm kind of in a radish mood. Mm-hmm. And trying different things with radishes, and um, so that's that's the only creative thing I'm really doing right now. What about you? No, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I've wrapped up some editing projects that I was working on, so I don't currently have anything that I'm freelancing right now. Um, I'm not. I haven't been writing anything, although I keep telling myself I'll get back to that, but I'm not right now. Um, yeah, just kind of living life. Awesome. Yeah, it's nice. Any off-menu recommendations? Any off-menu recommendations? I don't think I have anything new. I think last time I talked about Halt and Catch Fire, so we're still watching that on Netflix. Um, I am not watching it yet, but I know that the new season of Orphan Black is coming up. I just saw the mm-hmm. trailer mm-hmm. for it. I am obsessed with that show. And I think maybe if the only way I can ever get you to watch it is that we have to do another podcast after our Avatar podcast, <laughs> then maybe we'll do an Orphan Black podcast and I'll like buy you a Prime membership for a year or something so that you can watch it. Um, <laughs> our other podcast really should just be making each other watch things. <laughs> I know, forcing each other to watch stuff that we wouldn't otherwise get around to. Pretty um, much. <laughs> yeah. Orphan Black is so phenomenal. And it hits so many JJ buttons. It has I know. so many things in it that I know that you would love. And it just, I'm just in awe of Tatiana Maslany. I just, she's, yeah. she is just incredible. And I can't, um, you know, we've seen like a lot of, TV shows where the same actor has to play multiple roles. You know, we've talked about Dollhouse before and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't so much work, you know? Um, and in Orphan Black, without getting spoilery, Tatiana Maslany, the lead actress, plays multiple roles. And every single time, every single second of every single frame I cannot believe that they have like quintuplets who are all great actresses. <laughs> I'm like, I can't believe they found these five identical girls who are all amazing actors because it is such, she so totally inhabits every different character so completely that she's talking to herself on the screen and it's like my mind despite knowing that it's the same person and it's spliced in with special effects. Like, I know how this show is made. And yet, I I just, every single time, I just so totally believe everything that she does. She's just fabulous. And the show itself is great. Um, so I'm looking forward to that, but I, it's not here yet, so I haven't watched it. The only reason I haven't seen it is because I don't have a Prime membership. I know, I know. Maybe I'll buy you one for your birthday. Your birthday's, <laughs> your birthday's in July. I'll get you a year's worth of Prime, and then I'll just G-chat you constantly until you have seen the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what friends are for, enabling right. one another in the consumption yeah. of media. 
What about you? Do you have any off-menu recommendations? Um, a couple. Uh, it's funny because you'd mentioned that you're doing a parenting podcast mm-hmm. um, with your friends. And I've actually lis- been listening to one. It's not strictly a parenting podcast. It's actually a writing, publishing, and parenting podcast. Oh, what um, is it? It's called Writing in Real Life. And it's hosted by author Barry Liga and his wife, Morgan Baden. He's a published author, YA author. He's um, author of I Hunt Killers, uh, The Adventures of Fanboy and Goth Girl. And um, he and his wife have, I guess she's, her name is Leia. And it's spelled like Princess Leia, which I thought was adorable. And their daughter is about a year old, I think. She's just like, and so they, so each podcast kind of has a writing update, a publishing thing that they're discussing, and then kind of a segment about parenting. Um, and I find them all really interesting, even though I'm not a parent, but, um, so I like them. They're, they're pretty good. I'll have to Um, check them out. Yeah, I think you'd like it. I've also been listening to, this is the reason I had that kind of horror epiphany, because I was, I've been listening to the No Sleep podcast. I've, you know, Mark is not working nights, so I can listen to them during the day and come home and not, and and be able to sleep at night, basically. (laughs) Um, And it's a little bit different, I think, than like the black tapes, because these are actual short stories that people have written. And... Um, I think they either, they must acquire the rights or something to read them aloud on the podcast. They're, you know, they're dramatized. They've got voice actors and sound effects and, and some of them are really good and some of them are kind of meh. And, and I think I've, I've discovered about myself that I just not a fan of body horror and some of them were body horror. Some of them, I, I just don't find it scary. (laughs) I find it kind of gross, but not particularly scary. Um, whereas the ones that are kind of creepy or unsettling or ambiguous, I tend to find a lot scarier than, you know, things that have like supernatural monsters. I guess because supernatural to me is not horror. Yeah. It's kind of a subset of fantasy, even if the supernatural being is monstrous of some kind, in some way. I would agree. So, but yeah, I've been listening to those. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I've been consuming. I feel like I had one, and then I can't remember what it is now. (laughs) Uh, I felt like it was something that I was watching, but... It will come to me at some point. It'll come to me after we stop recording, of course. Uh-huh. I'm just going to be like, oh, that thing. That thing that I was watching or wanted to talk about. Um, but yeah, those are kind of the two things that I've been consuming right now. And then I come home and after I come back from the gym, I try and cook a little bit. And I read some more of of uh, The City of Dreaming books. The thing about that book, which is funny, which I love, you know, and I have plenty of read-alikes for it if you guys are interested in this kind of intellectual humor. Obviously, I mentioned The Phantom Tollbooth and Alice in Wonderland, but there's also a novel by China Mieville. I think it's like his only novel for teens, and it's called Unlondon. Yeah. I love that book. <laughs> it, it's got kind of the same sort of puns and humor, which is funny if, when you, if you've read any of other 
of his other stuff, like Perdita Street Station. He's of the new weird school of, of writing. Um, but there's something kind of creepy about <laughs> City of Dreaming books. It breaks the fourth wall. And it breaks the fourth wall in such a way that just kind of freaks me out. And I don't know why it freaks me out, but it does. So there are times when I'm just, like, reading something and I'm just like, Ugh! <laughs> like, And, you know, the conceit is that this character who is... This is why I find this book so funny. The main character is literally a literary dinosaur. He's a dinosaur. Um, and all the lindworms, that's what they're called, are, like, literary. You know, they write, they curate libraries and stuff like that. He's literally a literary dinosaur. And it's puns like this that just tickle me and delight me. Um, and he's telling you the story. But there are things sometimes that break the fourth wall in different ways that just kind of freak me out. So, <laughs> I don't know why it creeps me out so much. That's all for this week. Next week, we have a special episode for you. I have interviewed Roshni Chokshi, who is the author of The Star-Touched Queen. So, as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. And if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance. It really helps other listeners find the podcast. And if you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at sjjones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram, or on my website at penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you.